That's right, Texas has its own community-run Linux Fest on April 10th, 2010 in Austin, Texas. Go to TexasLinuxFest.org for details. And remember, get your Linux on. I'm Austin bound, get my eyes set on the price. Good evening. Welcome to episode number 31 of Linux in the Hamshack. I am your host tonight, Russ, K5TUX. Tonight we are going to be doing things a little bit differently. We've got a few folks waiting in Skype who are going to jump in and chat with us. Unfortunately, Richard was not able to be here tonight. His mother passed away suddenly this morning around 6 a.m. He was battling cancer, and it looks like something may have jumped ahead of the cancer and uh, put her into a coma and she didn't last much longer than that so our thoughts and our prayers are with richard and his family at this time certainly understandable why he is not here this evening so i did what i could and i gathered up a few folks who had some free time on their hands and were willing to come on linux in the ham shack and talk about some stuff I'm not even sure what that stuff is going to be yet, but we will get around to some good technical topics. We may even throw in some amateur radio. We still have feedback, and we still have donations to talk about, and the Dayton Hamvention. Let me click the little button here and bring in some of the co-hosts, or actually all of the co-hosts, and we'll get introductions out of the way, and then we can move on to some initial business. First of all, tonight, as my... Esteemed co-host, we have Ted, W-A-0-E-I-R, who is a long-time listener of the podcast and pretty much shows up in the chat room each and every week we do this. Good evening, Ted. Why don't you uh, say hello to everybody and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, hi, everybody. This is Ted, W-A-0-E-I-R, from snowy Iowa, and we're just getting over a little snowstorm here. Just a little light snow. Unfortunately, it snowed for about 36 hours. Just a little light snow. So how much uh, snow did 36 hours bring you? Uh, pretty close to five or six inches, probably. Oh, five or six inches. I thought you were going to put feet at the end of that. Oh, no, no, no. Five or six inches. But now, now it gets windy and it blows it everywhere, mostly everywhere I've already shoveled. Yeah, it's pretty much the same down here. we got about five or six inches as well, and it's uh, blowing all over the place. And, in fact... We are still getting the occasional flurry, and it was snowing while the sun was shining this afternoon. Pretty unusual for Arkansas. Fairly typical up here. In fact, it was actually 
close to, I think, 38 degrees and still snowing. Yep, I've been to Iowa many times, and it's something that the other parts of my brain that remember it are doing their best to scrub myself of. <laughs> Just kidding, Iowa's fine, as long as you like corn and pigs. That's... Well, and that's if you awesome. live anywhere yeah. near Pella, uh, tulips. More <laughs> pigs and people, right. <laughs> Enough disparagement of Iowa. The next person we have on the call tonight is Andy who is a self-proclaimed IRC hanger-on, IRC chat channel troll, or something like that. So if you'd like to embellish your credentials at all, please feel free to do so now. Um, no, I pretty much sit in IRCs all day and uh, usually have about five or six channels open, doing what I can. I actually sit inside one that's uh, in Android forums and help out with uh, Android questions all day long. Would you consider this a profession or more of a hobby? Uh, Android's more of a hobby. I've done some uh, application development in the past, and it's lots of fun, actually. I've actually downloaded the Android toolkits as well as the iPhone SDK and have been thinking about getting around into playing around with some of that stuff, but haven't really had a chance. Yeah, the, uh, the Java and the toolkits for the uh, Android makes it really easy to mess with. I see that the guys over at the Computer Action Show have created an application for their program, and it sounded like it might be a fun thing to do for ours. So that's why I did that, and hopefully I'll get into kicking around with it some. I guess I know where I can ask questions about Android when I need them. See, there you go. All right, perfect. Third and final, except for me, we have Bill, KA9WKA, who has been helping us out on the podcast for the last few months doing show notes, random gophering, and co-hosting when we badger him into it. And if uh, he would like to embellish his credentials at this point, we'll let him go do that now. Good evening, Russ. Thanks for having me on again. And you can't forget uh, sweeping up the halls after the show's over. Uh, that's right. All the popcorn wrappers, um, spilled soda, so on and so forth. Yeah, we do appreciate <laughs> that. We really do. Not a problem. So that's everybody. We have Bill and Ted, and we're not going to make the obvious joke, and Andy, and myself. And as I said before, it's definitely unfortunate that Richard can't be here today, but we certainly understand, and we hope everything is going as well as it can for he and his family at this time. So, unless someone has anything to bring up just off the top of their heads, I'm going to do a little feedback. Nope, let's do it. Let's yeah. do it, huh? Somehow I knew I was going to be doing all the talking. <laughs> it was the general consensus that we didn't do this feedback last time so i'm going to do it this time it comes from jay mclaughlin i don't see a call sign here so i'm not sure there is one but it has to do with the linux journal episode where we interviewed the guys from linux journal that's episode number 29 and the comment reads thusly I think the analysis on the Kindle was spot on. It was refreshing to hear someone else express the DRM concerns as a deal breaker. I've been watching the Barnes & Noble nook, and there are promising root hacks to make the device usable as a portable document manager. I have daydreams of the dual screen possibilities. And that's from Jay McLaughlin. And thanks very much for writing in. Since we didn't talk about this, it was definitely worth pointing out all of the DRM concerns of the Kindle. And uh, there was that noted episode a while back with 1984, 
where they actually went in and retracted the book from people's mobile devices. So everyone got a little freaked out about that, as I think they should have. But unfortunately, the e-reader platform has not really matured yet. There's not really a lot going on with it. The new iPad, while everybody's talking about it, doesn't really seem like an e-reader by itself and, quite frankly, doesn't even seem like a worthwhile device, especially considering what they cost when you get all the features. So I wouldn't even consider one as an e-reader. But they all have their limitations. Some of them have to be synced up via cables. Uh, Some of them don't have the libraries, so on and so forth. What do uh, the three folks in the peanut gallery tonight have to say about e-readers and DRM? Well, I haven't had a lot of experience with them. I, in fact, my daughter just today took received her Kindle that she wants to use for her uh, graduate coursework. She looked at both that and the Sony e-reader and came to the conclusion that the Kindle was better than the Sony. But uh, as you say, it's an immature market. From what I can tell, it's a nice little device, but... Uh, I don't know. I'm happy to read PDFs on a computer or a netbook rather than uh, tote around yet another device. I would certainly mm-hmm. like a nice place to put uh, ebooks on a device that I already have, whether it be an iPod or a Sansa Clip or some other thing, whether it's just a thumb drive or a simple MP3 player or something that could handle either a decent screen or a true e-ink or something like that where I don't happen to have uh, yet another device as well. And I think that's twice we've stepped on Andy, so let's go ahead and let him talk now. That's all right. I think the biggest problem that we're seeing from e-readers right now is that there's no real standard format. I mean, we've got a couple different ones running around, but there isn't one that's really just taken over. And I think that kind of hurts the whole market there. Yeah, I don't know if that's because people haven't decided that books need to be digital at this point. Uh, I know a lot of people who talk about e-readers and reading in general have said that they like to actually feel the pages and stuff like that. Maybe the e-book market is just, we haven't been convinced that that's what needs to happen at this point. Or maybe they just haven't come up with the right thing to make us switch over to a you know a digital reading format. For myself, I still like books. Yeah, I'm a book person myself, especially with you know tech books. I like to be able to have that thing with me and... Who can resist carrying around a camel with them? Well, that being said, it wouldn't it be nice to have two or three dozen of them on one little device rather than having to carry around 12 books? In a sense, I definitely agree with that, because once upon a time I used to collect you know, CDs and tapes, and I had hundreds and thousands of them, and actually a little bit directly behind me in the video feed you can see what look like books, but they're not actually books. They are CDs and DVDs. I used to love collecting those, the physical media. But I've actually changed the way I do that now. I mean, I love the iPod. I love being able to have all of that stuff that's behind me in one device that fits in the palm of my hand. And I certainly would love to have all of the books that I ever read or would ever like to read in one device as well. But it gets to the point of you have to have a library where the media is cheap enough and diverse enough so that I can have just as much in print form on a device as I do in audio form on a device, and I don't think we're there yet. I kind of agree with you. I just don't think that we're, you know, where we need to be for an e-reader yet. It's, I don't think enough of our uh, culture has moved over to that kind of reading yet. So many people are used to just reading from a book. 
I know a lot of people that can't read things online. Well, well might there's be a little uncertainty about the media itself, with, especially given the fact that the prices are starting to go up on the electronic versions of books to the point where it's about the same to buy either the paper copy or the digital copy. And given a choice, I'd rather have the paper copy just because I know that can't be taken away from me or inadvertently lost due to a computer crash or something like that. And in the case of the Kindle, of course, they always promise that they'll keep whatever you buy for you. They keep a record of that so they can always get it back. But do you believe them? When it comes to the Kindle, I certainly don't. Yeah. I hope I'm not giving away a billion-dollar idea right now, but I know they have um, flexible CRT, or not CRTs, but flexible LCDs nowadays. So I wonder what it would cost or what it would take to engineer something that looks like a book where the inside of the front cover, the inside of the back cover, and one flexible page in the middle um, are all LCDs that display e-ink with the binding as a battery and storage source where you use something like accelerometers and uh, similar iPod technology where you have where you open the thing up and you use that center page to flip back and forth and as you flip it um it changes what's on the pages and it actually is like reading a book but it's all digitized so what you're saying there is basically the uh, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy you want one of those something like that yeah yeah, and when LG has one of these at the next CES, I'm going to stomp around screaming because I thought of it first. But <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm okay with them stealing ideas like that as long as it, you know, helps us, the consumer, out. And as long as I get some of the cut. But how is that fundamentally any different than a Kindle or any other e-reader? I mean, other than the fact that you've got a page you can physically manipulate, you still have some of the same concerns, don't you? Yeah, well, I mean, that doesn't address DRM for sure. I would assume that DRM gets addressed in a different forum. I'm just talking about the tactile issue of having a book over something, a digital device. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think he's talking about something that bridges the gap almost in between the two to get people used to reading on e-readers. Well, from what I've seen of things like the, the Kindle and the Sony e-reader, it's awfully close the way it is. Um, the displays are quite nice. Uh, even the... The Kindle has got, I think, 16 shades of gray, and it's amazing. Uh, even photographs look quite nice on it. So I can imagine that it would do technical drawings, math formulas, all that kind of stuff very well. Um, I don't really need to physically turn a page so much as uh, make sure that once I buy something, it really is mine. Yeah, that's my biggest concern. Uh, you've got different software packages out there like Steam and things like that to distribute video games and other software, yep. and I won't buy things on those because if they go down, I don't have my software anymore. Well, in fact, even even if you buy, and this is getting a little off topic, but um, so I think it was last Christmas my son gave me a game. It was the Orange Box, and actually it was a Christmas a year ago, I think. When I finally got around to installing it, Steam claimed that my registration code wasn't any good. And yet here I have the original box, the original CD, and it, it says it's not valid. Yeah, that's yeesh. What platform are you playing? Uh, do you have what console, or is that a PC game? It was a, PC, a PC game, PC. Windows, yeah. Well, when it comes to Microsoft products and things like that, um, there are issues all around. In fact, I had one issue where this is like the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen as far as uh, something concerning physical media. 
they tell you when you're moving an Xbox 360 not to move it with the media in it because it can be irreparably damaged. How this happens, I don't know, but we actually saw it firsthand. I moved it from one room to another, basically 60 feet away, and um, my Rock Band disc was, you know, looked perfectly normal, but was uh, irrevocably damaged, could not be played. Wow, that's some laser in that player. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what most likely happened is is, uh, it got a tiny little scratch on the top there, and when they get the scratch on that foil side, they're just like a CD and don't like to work anymore. I've used CDs and DVDs in normal players or in computers, stuff like that, and I've seen the stuff that comes from Netflix. It's unbelievable the damage these things have, and they still play. Well, you have to remember, this is Microsoft hardware you're dealing with. So, <laughs> Well, that's very true, and that was kind of my point. <laughs> yeah, because with my PS3, I have no none of those problems. Then again, it is with Blu-ray discs, and those are nigh-indestructible. Haven't, haven't made the jump to Blu-ray yet. I think we're going way off on this one now. And I do have like eight more things to get through, so I probably should get moving. Okay, we have another piece of feedback. It's a Google alert for Linux in the Ham Shack, and it comes from the guys down in Australia, and I think the call sign for them was uh, VK7AX, uh, was the guy who is playing a lot of the amateur radio podcasts on a rotation for a news segment down there in Tasmania. Apparently they're adding all of the new ones like Low SWR and Practical Amateur Radio Podcast, and of course Linux and the Hamshack is still in that mix. Uh, we were reported as being played down there within the last couple of weeks, I think. So I want to thank the guys for exposing Southern uh, Australia and Tasmania to all of our rambling. So glad so we all join in a rousing good on you, mate. <laughs> you can lead if you want. <laughs> Okay, here's another Google alert where it shows that we were mentioned on a blog, and this is Joe's blog, WN2SYZ, and his blog is at WN2SYZ.posterous, P-O-S-T-E-R-O-U-S dot com. Uh, this is just basically, it looks like a list of things that he's interested in. He mentioned resonant frequency and Linux in the ham shack, so if you want to check out his blog and see the kind of things that Joe WN2SYZ is interested in, go and check that website out. And Bill, of course, will stick that in the show notes, won't you, Bill? You bet. I knew that you would, since that's what we don't pay you for. (laughs) Uh, The guys from Linux Journal, uh, in particular Dave, KG4GIY, posted another mention of us over there at Linux Journal when he talked about, or when we talked about software-defined radios. He mentioned that we talked about software-defined radios and that we had talked to the guys, or that Richard had talked to the guys uh, at Flex Radio down at the Belton Hamfest, and he included a link to Linux in the Ham Shack and also mentioned that we talked about software-defined radios in episode 26. So thank you very much, Dave, for the additional mention over there, and we're, of course, listed um, at linuxjournal.com stroke ham. I should say slash ham because... Last time I said stroke ham, things got weird. <laughs> Over at linuxjournal.com slash ham, we are listed as a ham radio resource and podcast. So thanks to the guys for leaving us up over there at Linux Journal. We almost had uh, Dave or Sean Powers, one of the two of them, on here tonight, but they both had things they had to do. So a little unfortunate that, but we've got some good guys anyway. And we wish Sean the best. I hope he... Uh 
recovers from his house fire very quickly. Yeah, I know he's had a lot of community support, and I know that Chip and Paige netted him a lot of money to be able to buy the clothes and the essentials and everything he needed to get back on his feet. We have another Google alert here that mentions a tweet, and this tweet comes from Chris Clardy. And his Twitter ID is WOKNSS, and he said, Catching up on Linux in the Hamshack podcasts. Unfortunately, he didn't mention where to get them, but presumably a Google search would uh, tell him where. You know, let me do that. Linux in the Hamshack. Where are we on the list here? Look at that, number one. How com- how convenient. Good on you, Google. So anyway, do a search for Linux in the Hamshack. Of course, you already know how to get there anyway because you're listening to the show. We can go ahead and mention this. This is um, the Texas Linux Fest at texaslinuxfest.org. Is a one-day Linux Fest coming up in Austin, Texas on April 10th. I thought that I might be able to get down there on the 10th for this, but considering it's a a ten-and-a-half-hour drive for a one-day event, I'm probably going to skip it. But we have uh, played the promo for the Texas Linux Fest. It was at the beginning of this episode as well. And if you get a chance to be down in Austin, Texas in early April, go check out the Texas Linux Fest. Do you know if Richard's going to make it? Do I know if Richard's going to make it? I do not know. All right. He had mentioned, I think, once before that he might try to get there. So anyone going, look for Richard. Say hi. Yes, if Richard does wind up going, and if for some reason I wind up going, look for either or both of us down there. Austin is only about three, maybe a little over three hours from where Richard is, and he was able to get down to Belton. He may be able to get down to Austin as well. So make sure you give him a hard time if you go. All right, I got another Google Alert that shows we are mentioned over at the Low SWR website. That is a new amateur radio podcast done by Rich, KD0BJT, and Brady, KD0BJS. They have, I believe, come out with eight episodes up till now. It's a father and son team who are put together, putting together a pretty good podcast. If you're in, it's uh, definitely amateur radio related. Uh, they're both Windows users. We can't speak to their choice of computer platform, but if you're interested in the amateur radio side of things, they are doing a pretty good job. And they have us listed over there as a resource. I asked if Rich could come and do the podcast tonight, but he didn't respond. He's probably out doing something hamish. I've got one more bit of feedback, and then we're going to touch on some donations. This feedback comes from The Axis. Uh, No call sign mentioned, and it was actually sent to me and to the guys over at Mintcast and to the Linux Link Tech Show. So this is probably going to get read on all three programs, but here we go. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for your recent shows that covered the program's screen. Linux in the Hamshack and Mintcast, with Art Vanderhoff as a guest, Both did a segment on the program. I had never heard of the program screen before and was inspired to give it a try once I heard how it was being used by the other Linux users. I was able to fire it up and had a very good idea what was going on right from the start after listening to your podcasts. I am now playing with some of the finer details and configuring it for my own needs. The whole attach-reattach thing is incredibly useful, and I might not have ever known about its possibilities without your respective shows. Thank you. Axis. Well, it's good to know that one out of the thousand or so people that listen to the show like it. We got some feedback, or I asked a few people before the show when I wanted to talk about screen whether it was a good idea or not, and everyone warned me away from command line stuff. But 
It turns out some people are willing to kind of brave the elements and see how powerful a computer can be. Did you guys learn anything about Screen or try it or even care? I did play with it a little. I've never had the really never had a need for it, but uh, it can be very very handy to to be able to keep the process running on uh, kind of in the background and come back later. Typically, I'd have to come back to the same machine and just just kind of hide things. But this allows you to go to another machine and come back and, and connect to the to the same process. Well, I find it useful for for coming back even to the same machine and using the same process. One of the things I use it most for is keeping a connection to IRC open. Um, I can set my away and not away status and then just disconnect my screen and then come back to it wherever I happen to be, whether it's the same computer or a different one. It's also pretty useful if you actually want to do something like, I mean, I'm not sure how technically legal it is to do this or how you might want to try it, but you could conceivably use uh, something like PSK31LX to do digital transmission when you're not actually at your radio. Um, as long as you had good rig control, you'd probably be okay with that. Well, as far as I know, that's legal to do as long as you have some sort of, as you say, control of the radio. Should it do something unintended, you can still turn it off or on or whatever needs to happen. Um, because I know there are several people that remotely run radios often because they have like antenna restrictions or something where they live, but they might have another house, you know, many miles away that has no such restrictions and they have their radio there. Um, and they operate it over the internet or by some other means. And, uh, as far as I know, that's perfectly legal. Again, as long as you've got some sort of other channel to get to the radio to turn it off, if it does something unintended. Exactly. I can sit on my, patio with a with a laptop uh, and connected my LAN here which has the PC and the rig connected to it I can sit on the on my patio and work PSK well that's excellent and I haven't seen a lot of other um, curses based terminal applications for doing things like PSK 31 uh, I'm sure they're out there I probably need to do a little bit more investigation into that and since we introduced screen as a topic of conversation as a, and as a method to control your rig and use digital modes, it might be a good idea to actually propagate some more information about other things you can do, whether it be other digital modes like Hellschreiber or, or, what, or Olivia or whatever, or other things that might be interesting. Things like satellite trackers might be hard to do at the terminal level, but you never know. People do weird things. I think PSK 31LX is about the only one for PSK. They have used, uh, they have developed things on handheld devices, though, as well. All right. Well, if we have no more conversation on that, I'm going to go into donations, and then we'll take our first break. Oh, I also want to thank the Axis for writing in, giving us that good feedback on screen. It made me feel like uh, my ranting in Episode 30, well, I don't want to call it ranting, but my rambling, certainly, in Episode 30, was not all for nothing. Last but not least, we have some donation information. After episode 30, we had most of our donations that we needed in order to get our booth space at the Dayton Hamvention in Dayton in May of this year. And we were starting to run out of time on getting those donations in, but it turns out we actually made our goal. We got a donation uh, about a week and a half ago from Walter again, WN3LIF. So I want to thank Walter very much for sending in a second donation. 
and I was able to match Walter's donation immediately, and that got us up to within uh, very close to our $750 goal. I was going to use the opportunity of episode number 31 to get that last little push out there so that we could make the last few dollars to get up to our $750 fund. Well, it turns out I don't have to do that because thanks to Ohio Linux Fest's own Beth Lynn Eicher that we uh, interviewed a little while ago and who helped us out getting set up at Ohio Linux Fest and was very good to me and Cheryl when we were up there. She donated the rest of the money that we needed to match our $750. So we have achieved our goal, and I want to thank Beth Lynn very, very much for that donation. That's very generous. We have met the $750, so I can say officially that we will. Now, whether this is me and Cheryl or whether Richard is going to make it or the three of us and maybe a surprise guest or two, I'm not sure. But, you know, in some way, shape, or form, Linux in the Ham Shack will be represented in Dayton in May. So we certainly hope to see everyone out there, whether you're into ham radio or just going to get into it, or even if you're not, come out and say hi if you are a listener of the program. Well, congratulations. I think that's terrific. Yeah, I was beginning to wonder, although I shouldn't wonder. We have great listeners, and they've always been, while they don't send a lot of feedback, they've always been helpful. It should be a good time. I'm looking forward to seeing you there. All right. Well, we already know Bill's going to be there. What about you, Ted? Uh, I wish I could, but I don't think so. Oh, that's too bad. We will miss you. We'll we'll miss you specifically. <laughs> I'll put up a sign that says, We Miss Ted. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs> okay, so we do have. I have a, a topic or two planned for the second segment. I don't know if anybody else has thought of one, but hopefully they have, and hopefully I don't have to do all the talking. We're going to take a little break, so do whatever you have to do. Maybe get a drink, maybe get up and stretch, make it like the seventh inning. And I'm going to throw some music on, and we'll be back on the other side with segment two.
and unfortunately, I'm going to have to bring us back in for the music, too. We don't have Richard to make some witty comment about all of the music that I play, even though he doesn't know what it is because he hears it after the show is produced. But that's okay. We don't want to give away all of our secrets. No, but I predict it was a terrific selection. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm not sure what you're basing that on, but we'll go with it. Was it country? No, it was not country. <laughs> I thought you listened to the show. <laughs> Have you heard country yet? Not yet. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, don't worry. You won't. <laughs> not that I don't like country, but country is not something that's going to get played on the program. No. All right, well, while we were away, we had a comment in the chat room, which we are going to address, or which I think uh, Bill is mostly going to address, and the rest of us may throw in a word or two. But the question is from Ronnie, K4RJJ, and he says, I would like to say what he says, but my... I can read it if you like. Go ahead, Bill, read that question. Okay, Ronnie writes, what PDAs would work with sound card digital modes? Linux would be a plus. I've seen the Nokia 770 and later units work on APRS, but not sound cards. Well, I'm not sure about the sound card part, because typically PDAs, you know, they may have a speaker and a microphone, and that's about it. But I do know that there's one app for the iPhone called IPSK31 that uh, uses the iPhone's microphone and speaker to encode and decode PSK signals. Uh, the idea being you run their app and lean the iPhone up somewhere near the microphone and speaker of your radio, and you can actually carry on a PSK contact using your iPhone. I can't say that I've used it because I don't have an iPhone, but I do have an iPod Touch. Unfortunately, one of the differences is it does not have an actual internal microphone, so I'd have to figure out how to add one to it to give it a try. But at a dollar ninety nine, it might be just worth that just to play with it and see what it would do. It sure sounds like a neat little program. There is a hardware microphone you can add to the iPod Touch to make it so that you can use sound-based applications. I know that, and I think it was fairly expensive the last time I checked it out, like $79 or something. Whoa. Yeah, not the greatest thing in the world. So if you don't have an iPhone that already has a built-in microphone, you're going to get saddled with that little expense if you want to try this application. My only worry about the application is uh, the part where you actually have to send the PSK data. I mean, clearly it's going to decode whatever you send, or encode, rather, whatever you send just fine, but typing on the software keyboard to send PSK sounds like it would be kind of a pain. Yeah, I thought about that, too, and... and I think at least that, uh, from what I understand, you can compose your um, response or whatever on the software keyboard, and then you hit, you know, place it where it needs to be, and then hit send. So you don't actually have to type in real time. But still, it could be a little annoying. I know that I'm all fingers, all thumbs with uh, with that thing, but uh, in a pinch, it could be kind of neat. Well, I happen to agree with you there. The only thing is I haven't had enough experience with PSK-31, but from what I've seen, people who are awaiting a response on PSK-31 pretty much expect you to open up the transmitter and then type. If you make yeah, mistakes, that, yeah, you're right. If you make mistakes, it's one thing as long as they can see characters flowing across. But if you're spending a minute, two minutes, three minutes to compose a message before you send it, they may give up on you. That's very true. Um, so if if it were me, one of the first things I would say is, hey, I'm using my iPhone. Give me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's that. 
and then they might berate you for using an iPhone to do PSK31. But you know, like <laughs> but it does have the capabilities of of pre-set messages, macros. You know, that's only as good as your your you know your hello, your QTH, your brag file, and then what are you going to do? I mean, if you're actually having a non-contest QSO. You know, you might want to, you know, actually make up what you're saying instead of having a bunch of stuff pre-keyed. Although you could just have the same conversation over and over again, I guess. Yeah, I've seen it done with uh, macros, especially if you're talking to someone whose language may not be English. Often uh, they're doing everything with macros, and it is a very short conversation. This is a topic I could bring up later. (laughs) I hate macros. Well, no, you can bring that topic up right now since we've segued into it. So go ahead. What, what do you hate about macros? What do I hate about macros? I'm, it's uh, The mode was designed as a keyboard to keyboard. I talk to you, you talk to me. A lot of the QSOs tend to be canned brag tape after brag tape after brag tape. And um, it just loses a little something as far as I'm concerned, uh, the quality of the QSO. And there's a few other things that they like to stick on with the macros that just, I don't need to know what time the QSO was. I've got a clock. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to tell me the date and the time of the QSO. Unfortunately, I'm not one who's done enough digital-type work to have anything to say about that kind of thing. I haven't found it particularly useful to use a macro at this point because I've made exactly one PSK contact at this point. I didn't have a macro file or a brag tape to use. I had to type everything out myself. Now, it doesn't really matter as far as I'm concerned, because I typically type about 120 words a minute, so I don't have to worry about having brag files and and macros set up. I, I can do well enough. I can actually type faster, I think, than the baud rate on some digital modes. I, I see where some people like it. Uh, I see where it is useful, it, just in the sense of not being repetitive when you want to type out, you know, what rig you're using, how much power you are, and what your QTH is, I get that. But at that point, you should drop it and move on to actually communicating. That's my point, exactly. Yeah, it's great for certain things. And depending on the software, you've got uh, – it's handy for things like overs, for CQs. Again, depending on the software, it's even handy for for uh, contests, uh, especially if the software will, where will let you or will plug in a – uh, number for you if you need a contact number. I know that FL Digi, if you get a contact and you type in the receiving, uh, if you type in the other party's call sign into the log file, then some of the macros are set up to take the information from your log data and put back into the QSO when you want to send something back. So that there's a macro to say, if you want to, if you want to type the name of the person you're talking to, you can specify that, and it comes directly out of the log file. And that can be handy, but that's not thats not being repetitive. That's just making sure that you're always getting the name and the call sign correct because you've already entered that into your log data. Sure, you use that for something like an over. Right. Right. And this well, is certainly fine. macros are most useful in a contest situation. Um, still, anything that, that improves the accuracy of my typing, I'm all for. So if I can edit a commonly used phrase or string and make sure I get it right, I, I'm happy to use it in a macro. Sure, and it's very, they're very handy for, for things like QTH, the repetitive things, QTH, uh, name, and so on. Once you get past that, then I, I like to be able to communicate with them. 
in, instead of being dumped. Well, true, but again, uh, if you're talking to DX, uh, often all they want is the contact and they move on. Um, yeah, exactly. Especially if English is not their primary language. Exactly. That's another great use for it. Exactly. When you, just uh, to go back to this uh, iPhone application, the IP, I, uh, IPSK31, I'm looking here. There is a way to cable it into a radio so that you don't need to uh, rely on an audio-only connection. It's they, There is a cable interface you can make yourself. Does it happen to mention whether you still have to use the iPhone's keyboard or whether, you're, since you're data cabled in, you can use your computer's keyboard? Well, with an iPhone, what computer would you have? Um, it would hook right to your radio, so I think you're still using the keyboard that's on the screen. I was kind of getting at whether I didn't under, know whether you're talking about something where you're using the iPhone that's cable to your radio or you've transitioned into a split cable device where the uh, the application is actually using your iPhone as a sound card. Oh, no, I think uh, everything's happening on the iPhone, so the cable is strictly a way to get sounds between the iPhone and the radio. Okay, so you probably still have to use the iPhone interface for typing, so, yeah. Yep. Which brings me to a question that I was going to bring up. The question was about doing digital modes and the duty cycle of the radio. Do you guys have a habit of, when you're doing digital modes, of uh, reducing power output um, so that you're not... Let's say you have a barefoot radio that runs at 100 watts. You don't necessarily run PSK31 in 100 watts since it's running full duty cycle, or how, how does that work for you guys? Oh, yeah, I never run 100 watts on PSK. I typically 30, 35 watts max, and, and that gets you as far as you want to go. And that's about as hard as you can drive the rig, too, without causing any uh, intermodulation distortion. Yeah, exactly. The trick there is... Uh, Hopefully you have a good meter with the, where you can see your your ALC and you want zero ALC. Yep. So you, There's you also an the add-on device called uh, a PSK meter that sits in your transmitter uh, output and with a, in this case, a Windows program monitors, samples that device and gives you a graphical display of uh, what your envelope looks like and it's very handy for controlling the uh, audio levels of a PSK signal without splattering. That's true. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Does that have does that have a, a Fourier output? Yes. Transform output, or is it just a sine wave? Uh, I think it's doing a Fourier transform to, to, on its display. Okay. Because okay. it, it, to me, anyway, it's a little easier to see IMD on a waterfall type display rather than trying to interpret the crossovers. Oh well, yeah. Maybe you're right. That, I, I do recall that it looks more like an oscilloscope display than anything else, um, but the Windows version of the software at least will automatically pull your audio drive back if it detects splatter, so you really don't have to do the adjustment yourself. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, the Linux version, you do have to do the audio control yourself, um, but it still can detect if you're splattering, and it will give you a splatter message. Um, so you bring down the... Uh, audio gain until that goes away, and you should be ready to rock and roll. That was going to be my next question. There is a uh, a Linux version. Yes, there is. And is it open source? Uh, I can't answer that off the top of my head, um, but I certainly will find a link to it and put it in the show notes. Very good. 
And no, Ronnie, it's not FL Digi. It's a, a different program that that does that. You can use it with FL Digi, but it would be a separate program that's just monitoring the envelope of your transmitted signal. Sure, it'd be an entirely different process. Yep. It's basically a broadband receiver, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think so. And it it uh, it just sits there on the output of my transmitter, and um, as I said, the software samples it periodically and gives you a nice little graphic display of what's happening. Yeah, it's with, very with cool. No phys- with no physical connection to your transmitter. It's just a receiver. No, there isn't. Yeah, it's sitting in the feed line in the transmitter uh, output. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know it was in line. I always I was under the impression that it was uh, it's just a broadband receiver. No, there is a device out there that that does that. I think I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think it's called an IMDB meter or something like that. And it's got a telescoping antenna you pull out and you just set mm-hmm. it somewhere nearby and it displays a two-digit number that's supposed to indicate um, the intermodulation levels or something. IMDB. A friend of mine, yeah, a friend of mine has one, and in practice, it doesn't work all that well. I'd much rather have this PSK meter. It seems to work much better. And the bottom line is, was mentioned earlier, thirty to forty watts maximum. Yep. And adjust the audio gain until you get a little ALC, then back it off so you get none. Exactly and right. I've never had any problems uh, following that process. All right, well, there's some good advice for those of you who are interested in using PSK31 and even a little bit of Linux content thrown in there. So hopefully Bill will actually find the information there and put it in the show notes because I'd be interested in that myself. Oh, yeah, definitely. I've got it here uh, in my bookmarks. I'll do that for sure. All right, fantastic. Well, I was going to ask either of you guys if you've done any uh, VHF, UHF satellite work or were considering it or or what. I have not... um... Uh, don't really have the antennas for it. I know you can build uh, handheld ones to do the uplink, downlink thing, um, but I have not done that. I've uh, read about it, but never did it. And the same would be pretty much true for me. Uh, the handheld sounds interesting, and that would probably be my limit here. I just have the wrong kind of lot for antennas, so I couldn't get anything special like that up. Well, the tricky part is you have to kind of track the satellite as it goes overhead, so you need control and at least uh, you know two or three axes of movement to keep it in your crosshair, so to speak. Uh, I've seen people use handheld antennas, and they just kind of listen to the signal, and they move the antenna where they think the satellite is. It takes quite a bit of skill, I think, to actually maintain a contact that way, but it can be done. Is the is the idea of moving the antenna along the axes to maintain polarity or what? Because I would think that the satellite being as far overhead as it is, that just having an antenna stuck up in the air would be enough to be able to get a signal back and forth. Yeah, but not very long. Those things tend to move at a pretty good clip, and I think their presence in your available window of sky uh, tends to be just a couple minutes. So you have to, and because of Doppler shift, as this thing's moving, you have to kind of track it. Right, you have to track the frequency in that case. Yeah. And if you've ever seen the space shuttle go overhead, you you better look quick because it's not there very long. I did get to see the space shuttle go overhead uh, about a month ago, actually, and it was a perfect night for viewing it. I mean, basically went straight northwest to to southeast, and it was in the sky, visible in the sky for a good almost seven minutes, I would say. 
uh, just because I think of the particular track it was in its orbit on that particular pass. That's not to say that it wasn't moving, because it was moving. Yeah, that, that was a nice high overhead pass. But imagine trying to keep an aero beam antenna on that target. Well, that's what I'm kind of getting at. I mean, if, if you're only going to make, say, a one-minute converse, you know, a one-minute QSO, where you're just going to talk to somebody, identify the fact that you're hitting, like, the AO-51 or whatever, uh, who you are, where you are, et cetera, and that only takes a minute, say, uh, do you really need to go through that kind of effort? Well, I think the problem here is you need a fair amount of gain in the antenna to reach the satellite. Uh, typically, uh, you know, especially if you're using a handy talk, it may only have five watts out. So you're going to need an antenna with a lot of gain on it, uh, which by definition means it's going to be very directional. So it's going to have a narrow beam pattern that you've got to aim right at that bird as it's going overhead. And, of course, you have to have a uh, handy talkie or another radio that will do um, multiband operation because typically you uplink in one band and downlink in the other. Yes. Right. So it's not as easy as I was hoping. I was kind of hoping to get the impression that I could just took my 2-meter radio or my 2-meter 440 here, put it on the requ- you know the requisite frequencies, and use my vertical that's up on the roof to make a contact. Now, maybe I maybe I could, maybe I couldn't, especially if it was on a, you know, if I had a good uh, a good high azimuth on a pass, I might be able to, but uh seems like there may be more to it. Well, it'd certainly be fun to try. I think it's worth, uh, worth giving it a go just to see. But uh, I know folks that are in this seriously, they tend to have antennas that track the birds as they go overhead. And some of them go so far as to have it hooked up to the satellite tracking programs in their computers, which in turn control the rotators on the antenna. So it's really completely automated. I would certainly love to give myself the best possible chance of success, but it seems like an extraordinary amount of effort to track something that might be visible over the horizon for five minutes at best. It can be done with just a handy talk and a homebrew antenna. I remember seeing a YouTube video of a fellow doing exactly that. I'll have to go search it. And uh, if I find it, I'll put a link in the show notes. Sounds good. I would definitely be interested. Uh, Satellite communication is one of those things that just seems like it would be very cool to try. Or talking with the ISS or the shuttle. Of course, talking with the shuttle may be about a mood issue at this point. Uh, Are there any more uh, STSs? Five, I believe. Uh, Ronnie in the chat room says four. Uh, maybe this one's five. Yeah, I guess if you want to talk to the space shuttle, uh, now is the time. Okay, well, I asked uh, Andy, who had to disappear on us, so unfortunately he is already gone, but we want to thank him for showing up for as long as he could, uh, and hopefully we will get him back to talk on a future episode. But we asked Andy and Ted and Bill if they would come up with a quick topic. Did you guys bother to write anything down? Well, I've got a few notes that, um, for lack of anything else, we might throw around. And I used mine up. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, give me, what are your ideas, Bill? I don't necessarily think we'll talk about them right now. We'll probably hit another break and then do them in segment three. But what what did you uh, write down? Uh, Well, we can talk about Linux Mint 8, if anyone's looked at that. I've installed it a couple of times. All right. I've looked at that, so I can comment on it semi-intelligently. Okay. Um, I can do a very brief talk about the MicroHAM USB Interface 3. Uh, it's a sound card digital mode device for your radio. 
Okay, that sounds interesting, which I can't speak to, but I'll certainly let you speak to it. Okay. And I've got a rant about microphones and Yezu VHF UHF radios. Oh, that sounds fabulous. I would love to hear that. So, <laughs> Okay, and I, I have one thing about uh, Ubuntu One Dropbox and the essentials of cloud computing, so we can probably hit that as a very short topic toward the end. So we have a few topics lined up for segment three. We'll probably bang those out pretty quick and keep this to a reasonably short episode. Ted and Bill will be hanging on here, so do whatever you have to do for the next four or five minutes. I'll find something from the archives to put on. Some Creative Commons great music that comes from Magnatune or Gemendo or one of those other great Creative Commons websites. And we will be back in a little bit to hammer out some more topics. See you then. Shoot down yourself, who cares? You're not for a chance. Shoot down yourself. 
Welcome back. Thanks for staying tuned into episode, or not episode, but segment three of episode number 31. We still have Bill and Ted, who are winding down their excellent adventure in episode number 31 of Linux in the Ham Shack. And we're actually going to let Bill, as Richard would say, run his head a little bit about a new-to-him USB sound card interface that he has been using, apparently, to some satisfaction. So go ahead, Bill. Yes. Well, as you may recall, and maybe you don't, um, some months ago I ran into a problem with my Rig Blaster Pro, and I have not determined the cause of this, but the fact that that device ended up with a bad uh, audio transformer in it, and my computer's system board sound card died all about the same time, I suspect I got hit with some sort of power line zap of some sort. Um so I didn't trust any of that, and I went shopping for a new uh, sound card interface device to run digital modes uh, with the radio. I had read some good things about the MicroHAM USB Interface 3, and this appealed to me on a, for a couple of reasons. One, it's got a sound card built in, and they claim it is uh, superior to most of the reasonably priced uh, aftermarket sound cards you can buy for a computer. It eliminates a whole bunch of cables. There's only one wire going between it and the computer, and that's a USB cable. And um, it works with Linux. So given all that, I bought one and plugged it in, and in brief, it works a treat. Uh, It was easy to set up, easy to use. Uh, It's got a bunch of little LEDs on the front. We all love LEDs, uh, so I can keep an eye on what's going on. And uh, no muss, no fuss, and... Works right out of the box, so I I give it a thumbs up. All right, I'm looking at the PDF for it, and it looks pretty interesting. Looks uh, a lot like a rig blaster, same sort of metal construction that a rig blaster has. So it looks nice and solid, anyway. It is that, and it's also quite small. It's um, maybe four inches wide, so it, it doesn't take up much room on the desk. It's sitting on top of my radio here, and barely notice it. Okay, so does it come with, like, different interface cables if you have different radios as far as, like, uh, initiating PTT and all that kind of stuff? 
Yes. Uh, when you order the device, you tell them what kind of radio you want uh, to use it with, and it comes with the appropriate cable. All right. So this is the only thing you need to interface digitally. Of course, it has a hookup for a microphone. Or, I'm sorry. Yeah. It has an output for the microphone audio. It has a plug-in for uh, speaker output so it can hear as well. And, of course, a serial connector, I imagine, for PTT, yes? Uh, actually, no. It, it does everything through the USB connection. Uh, you end up with a virtual serial port that, that handles all that. So, in a manner of speaking, yes, it's a serial port, but it's not a real one. Uh, you end up with a bunch of virtual serial ports that are used to control that kind of thing. Okay. Also, so this... it's nice that it has front panel actual knobs for adjusting the receive and transmit levels. Yeah, I see that in the little specifications that it has here. I'm wondering if it has the a cable for the 13-pin connector in the back of a Kenwood. Oh, yeah, there it is. Kenwood TS570 RS-232 levels has some jumpers to set the proper things for PTT, I guess. Uh works like a cat cable and everything so there is linux software for this or it works with hamlib it works with uh i believe it works with hamlib yeah uh there's there's no specific linux software with it but i've used it with fl digi without a problem um it does come with a little driver for windows to set up the virtual port routing but apparently that's not necessary with linux it supports it right out of the box Right, it gives you a virtual com interface. And what com port does it set up for you, just just out of curiosity? I made myself a cheat sheet so I would know the answer to that. Which has failed you miserably. No, I just took a second. To <laughs> yeah, I've got... Does it, uh, does it really have the com port, or does it basically have a little uh, Vox circuit that, that uses the key to, to push the talk? I don't know that I can answer that. I think uh, it looks like the software creates uh, USB voltage across USB, which will actually create a short to put to do PTT inside the device. Um, I assume the device has some sort of. Is it powered by USB or does it have a uh, wall wart? It is powered by the USB cable. Well, how about that? And I ended up with six virtual serial ports, all associated uh, with the well, one device. That's not strictly true. <laughs> Some of these are are real ones. I gotta think about this a second. One, two. Uh, looks like I've got four. All associated with the USB. All associated with the microham device. Yeah. And do they all work the same? You just pick one of them. Well, you assign functions to each of them. For example, rig control on my machine is uh, COM four. Push to talk is on COM five, and squelch is on COM eight. Oh, fantastic. And how much does this device cost? Uh, too much. <laughs> More than a rig blaster? Certainly there are models of rig blaster that are much less expensive than this. I don't recall the numbers here. It seems to me I spent about 300 bucks for it, I think. I was I was thinking about getting the rig blaster duo, which cost 349 less the interface cables. Yeah, it's competitive with the higher end Rig Blaster products, which in the past I've been a big fan of. But uh, when whatever glitch I had took out that audio transformer, I was a little disillusioned. The thing that bothers me about the Rig Blasters is the fact that everything's basically hardware-based. And on my Kenwood 570, I don't know if this is the same with the whatever radio you have, 
but I have it already has a serial port built into it for rig control. Then it has a 13-pin accessory port where you would access things like push-to-talk for a digital interface. So basically, unless you have two physical serial ports, you can't do both. This obviously overcomes that easily because it gives you four virtual serial interfaces, which is fantastic. But I'm not sure how the Rig Blaster handles that. And the thing about the Rig Blaster Duo is it's supposed to be able to handle two separate radios. And two separate radios is what I have. And I thought that might work out well for me. I could use my VHF, UHF radio on one side of it and my HF on the other. But if I have to do two virtual serial ports for one radio and it doesn't support that, it's not really going to help. Yeah. It uh, lists for $229, so it wasn't quite as bad as I thought it was. No, that might be worth it. I'm going to have to look at this. This looks like a fantastic device. And the fact that where I really need, I need two essentially serial ports, and where this gives you the option of having four may actually be a better option than what I was looking at with the Rig Blaster. Yes, it lets you uh, define, at least in my case, four separate serial ports, uh, one for the radio, um, one to run CW on, one for push-to-talk, and another for squelch sense. Does it allow you to pass the audio from your computer out through it so that you don't have to have a separate cable, or or so you can have a separate cable to pass your computer's audio? No. The only audio that it's transferring is coming out of the interface itself as it's got its own sound card built in. So there's no real need to have a connection to your computer's sound card. It is a sound card. Right, right, right. Okay, perfect. Yeah, because that's that's the problem I'm having right now. I'm using a Rascal GLX, and of course it doesn't have any of that stuff built in. It is not a sound card. Right. And so it has to use the computer sound card, and in doing so, you can only use the sound card on the computer for passing audio to the GLX. You cannot use it. Well, I mean, you can send regular audio through it, but you'll never hear it. Yeah, you risk it going out over the air, too. Right. Yeah, which is why I always had two sound cards in my computer, one for ham stuff and one for Windows stuff or operating system. And that worked quite well uh, until one of them got zapped. Well, this looks like a great device. If anyone is, it's competitive too. I mean, if you had to go out and buy a sound card and an interface, you know, you'd spend easily this much on something with a nice box and a decent, you know, user interface. So, it's competitive. Absolutely. It's sounding more and more interesting to me. I do have two serial ports because I do need one for CW and one for PSK, but uh, they are tending to become more scarce, so something like this in the future would be quite helpful. Yeah, I'm going to take a good long look at this, but for anyone else who's interested, uh, this is the Microham USB Interface 3, and you can find more information out about it at www.microham.com. You better say microham-usa.com, and that will get you to the United States site with pricing and distributors and all that. All right, excellent. And I know I'm going to be checking this out because this looks like something that I could use easily. And the construction, just based on the picture of it, looks uh, phenomenal. Looks like you could throw this thing around and never have to worry about it. 
Yep, it's first-rate construction. The um, custom cable for your radio is very well built, and every lead coming off of it is labeled explicitly as to where it goes. So it's really a no-brainer to hook it up. All right, that's fantastic. Well, thanks for bringing that up because it's uh, definitely intrigued me. Cool. All right, well, thank you for that. And the next thing we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Linux Mint 8. I am not sure what the code name for Linux Mint 8 is. I've only got it on one computer right now. I think it's Helena. Helena. Was that, I thought 7 was Helena. No, 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 7 no, was, was Gloria. Gloria. That's right, 7 was Gloria, 8 is Helena. Okay, excellent. I downloaded it because I was going to install it here on my desktop, the one that I'm using for doing the podcasting and all of that, and never got around to doing it. But I did install it on my laptop, which was running Linux Mint 7, Gloria. And I did a fresh install because, as far as I know, there's no way to actually upgrade Linux Mint 7 to Linux Mint 8. Yeah, uh, it seems that way. Yeah. They don't really have an upgrade cycle. It's not like Ubuntu, when they have an upgrade cycle, you start up your software manager and it says, ah, you can click here to upgrade to the next version. Mint doesn't do that, so you basically have to do a fresh install. They uh, tend to recommend you don't do that for some reason. As far as Ubuntu is concerned, you mean? No, Linux Mint. I've read in forums that they would they suggest you do not try to upgrade. I guess there is a way to do it, but it's cumbersome and fraught with peril. Regardless of the reasons why you shouldn't do it, I didn't do it because there was no obvious way to do it, so I just kind of, you know, went the easy route there. And I actually had a couple of problems with my install of Linux Mint 8, but it's nothing that's keeping me from using my laptop or anything like that. So what have your experiences been with it? Generally very good. Um, my initial feeling is that it's not as fast as 7. I noticed that some things just seem to take a little bit longer to happen. Um, visually, it's very pretty. Uh, I know that they made some enhancements to it that uh, I wish I could remember. <laughs> but otherwise, the the install went fine, and, and it runs fine. Um, I even installed it in a dual boot configuration with my Windows XP machine. Uh, I was reluctant to do that in the past, uh, but that went perfectly fine. Uh, without any problems whatsoever. So it works for me, although I think, as I said, it's just, for whatever reason, slightly slower than 7, at least on my hardware. I didn't notice any particular speed differences. The one problem that I've been having with it is the upgrade or the install went fine, as far as I can see. It was the typical Linux Mint install. It asks you like six questions, and then it goes off and does its thing, which is one of the easiest installers out there, which is one of the reasons I really like it. Yeah, no kidding. Other than the fact that Linux Mint is one of the cooler distributions out there, especially visually, once you get it installed. Once I did get it installed, each time my X Windows session starts up, and I'm using GNOME, you know, whatever version it is now, 2.4 or whatever. Sure. My taskbar, see, I always, I always take the Linux Mint taskbars and change them so they look like Ubuntu's taskbars, because I just like the way Ubuntu does them better. And I did that, and it seemed to work fine, but, and all of my settings were there, of course, because I maintained my home directory when I redid the install. Every time I start up X-Windows with GNOME, my taskbars are not fully populated. Now, if I log out and log back in, everything comes up just peachy. But the very first time I boot up the computer and log in, my taskbars are all messed up. 
and then log out and log in fixes it. So I'm not sure what that's about. I'm not even sure it's worth filing a bug report about. But that's really the only problem I've had with Linux Mint 8. Do you recall any of the uh, enhancements that they made from 7 to 8? Um, I do not, although I did a search on Google, yay Google, for yeah. <laughs> the change log, and this is what this says. I'm not even going to say where this is from because it's just a little blur, but here's what it says about it. The eighth release of Linux Mint comes with numerous bug fixes and a lot of improvements. In particular, Linux Mint 8 comes with support for OEM installs, a brand new upload manager, the menu now allows you to configure custom places, the update manager now lets you define packages for which you don't want to receive updates. The software manager now features multiple installation and removal of software, and many of the tools' graphical interfaces were enhanced. Yeah, I think it was the update manager that was the big difference. Yeah, that, that's all it says, and, and all of those are pretty vague, really, but yeah, um, I, I didn't actually go in and look at I mean, I know there's an actual change log on the system somewhere, and, of course, that will only be on my laptop because it's the only thing running Helena right now. So I won't have that here. I'm looking at the release notes page here. Uh, Linux Mint 8 is based on Karmic instead of Jaunty, which, of course, right. is a big uh, big thing we probably should mention. <laughs> newer version of GNOME, newer version of Xorg. Yeah, so everything that was everything that was fixed and updated in Ubuntu in the upgrade from 9.04 to 9.10, Jaunty to Karmic, of course, is affecting Linux Mint. But then as far as Mint specifically... Menu improvements. you got to love how they're vague about that stuff. You know, what menus, yeah. what improvements. <laughs> uh, configurable places they're talking about. You can define your own places. For example, a music button pointing to your music directory. Yeah, I'm not seeing anything in the distribution itself for the install. I mean, obviously, it's in here somewhere. There's a there's a change file or a change log built in somewhere, but I'm not going to go digging for it. All right, Ted, you're being very quiet. Well, that's true. <laughs> well, at least you're honest. You know, I have I have looked at that at, at Mint, and it looks nice, but I haven't. Uh, sorry to say, I haven't tried it yet. I tend to have older stuff here, older and slower, and some of the new bells and whistles tend to slow things down for me. And I, I'm more of a Kiss Principle guy, so I like to. Actually, if you're a Kiss Principle guy, Linux Mint should be for you. Really? Oh yeah, it's very simple to operate. I mean, it has it, it really has one of the simplest installers out there. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about what's running and uh, how many processes are running. If I just boot it up, do I have 130 processes running or what? Oh, yeah, probably. probably, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I got a couple hand-me-down computers here that are like one gigahertz. That's the fastest ones I got. Well, in my experience, that what's more important is how much memory you throw at it. Um, and I don't have enough memory. <laughs> that would be a problem. Yeah, it's a problem. Well, the other thing is the desktop environment tends to, thing, tends to be the thing that chews up the most memory and the most resources. So what you could do... Is Absolutely. If you run, you know, a much smaller window manager, you can obviate the need for the memory, but that's an extra step you have to go through. Right. I mean, Linux Mint by default installs with GNOME, but you could install it with, say, something like Fluxbox or Open... XFCE. Or, yeah, or F... Yeah. 
or uh, FVM, FVWM95 or Enlightenment or one of the other lightweight Windows I managers. Haven't yet. Um, <laughs> I'm drawing a blank on it right now myself uh, for the window manager. Uh, so you don't remember which window manager you're using? Is that what you're saying? I can't remember what I'm using right now, yeah. <laughs> Standby. I'll go look. Open box, Flexbox, Enlightenment, FEWM95, XFCE. PSAUX. <laughs> EIEIO. Rat Poison. That really is a window manager, by the way. I love that name. <laughs> Uh, let's see. After Stop, Ice. Window Maker, Ice, Ice WM, Ice WM. I'm sure. Yep, the one we didn't mention. <laughs> I'm surprised I'm not running Motif Window Manager and NCSA Telnet. <laughs> hey. <laughs> yep, Ice. All right, Ice WM. Yay! Uh, one thumbs up for Ice WM. There you go. That's enough of that. I think we probably talked about as intelligently as we can about Linux Mint 8 since we don't really know much about it and its improvements. Except it runs fine. Oh, it does run fine, and the installation is just as smooth as always, but its enhancements are basically those of Ubuntu's jump to Karmic and a few nebulous things that they've thrown in uh, regarding the update manager and so on and so forth. So uh, if you're a Mint user... Go ahead and upgrade to Mint 8. There's certainly no reason not to. If you're not, uh, certainly give it a try. If you have a free machine or whatever, or put it in a VM or whatever it is you need to do. Or even just boot off the live CD and give it a play. Yeah, you can do that, too. I'm just not a big fan of live CDs. All right, well, we got a couple more topics to nail down here before we run away for the evening. So Bill is going to rant a little bit about Yezu FT7900, I think it was, or some kind of... So some of the newer Yezu microphones, and I'm interested about this because I just bought a new Yezu rig, so I'm I'm curious to hear what he's got to say about it. Well, actually, it's not about a new rig. It's about an old one. Okay, well, <clears throat> I thought Yezu was the end-all, be-all. To listen to Ham's talk, you know, you can't do better than Yezu, so yeah, th- this will be interesting to me. Well, I agree, and uh, Yezu is my favorite vendor. I Look around my shack, and I think, yep, every radio I have within eyeshot is a Yezu rig. But the first one I ever bought, the first uh, not handy talk I ever bought, was a Yezu FT212RH, which is a two-meter-only rig. And I've used that radio now for probably 25, almost 30 years. The microphone finally died on it. And at first it manifested as just a push-to-talk switch that didn't want to work, so I tried to replace it. And, of course, ended up with a microphone that didn't work. Uh, You know, you can't find aftermarket microphones that will work with these things. I don't know what Yezu does with their microphone circuitry, but I tried several and had no luck whatsoever. I could get push-to-talk to work, but I could not get any microphone audio out of it. So I ended up buying another radio And at the time, the salesperson helpfully went online and looked at eBay and actually found some outfit in Hong Kong selling what they claimed to be uh, an aftermarket microphone that would work with that radio. So it was inexpensive. I think it was like $17 or something. Uh, I ordered it. It came. And what I got was a microphone on a stick, (laughs) uh, push-to-talk button wired into it, and up-down buttons, but it had the wrong connector on it. 
it was clearly meant for a newer version of Yezu radios with the six-wire modular microphone connector, not the eight-pin round that this old radio had. And in fact, the the replacement microphone worked fine with my 7800, but I had to cobble together an interface cable to make it work with the 212. The good news is it did, in fact, work once I made an interface cable. And the better news is when I ordered one, he sent two. So I don't know if that was a buy one, get one free. He was clearing them out of a warehouse or what. But the frustration of trying to get a microphone to work with a radio that is otherwise perfectly fine just seems unreasonable. I don't know what they're doing, but they're doing something unique that nobody else is doing to... uh prevent aftermarket microphones from working. I even called Yezu, and, and they said, no, we don't service, sell, support, do anything for a rig that old, and none of our current microphones will work with it. And they appeared to be telling the truth in that respect. So that's my rant. <laughs> good, rant. Good, good rant, yes, absolutely. Yeah. But the thing of it is, what what do you suppose could be doing it? I mean, because usually when you're talking about a microphone connection Basically, there's only a couple of things involved. There's some impedance issues with the actual element, the driven element of the microphone, and then there's what where the receive audio goes and where the transmit audio goes, and that's pretty much all there is to it. And as long as you connect one to one and one to the other, you get a working microphone. So uh, that didn't work for you? Nope. <laughs> In a word, nope. I, As I said, I don't know what they're doing. Um and and it's not limited to that particular radio. I've uh, had a pet project on my bench here for several months now of cobbling together a Vox circuit, a voice-activated switch, voice-operated switch circuit for a VHF radio because I wanted the convenience of operating with a headset, not mobile, sitting here in front of the computer so I could have my hands free and talk to my friend on two meters um, while I typed on the keyboard or something and... I could not get that to work either because, as I said, Yezu's doing something odd with their microphones. I could get push to talk to trip, but I couldn't get any microphone audio through. And I tried, uh, I think, three different microphone elements, and none of them would work. And I'm not an electrical engineer, so I really don't know, but I don't. it doesn't feel like just an impedance mismatch to me. I think there's something else going on. But what it is, I haven't a clue. Big thumbs down for uh, Yezu. On the other hand, on the bright side, <laughs> counterpoint here, the radio I replaced it with was a Yezu FTM-10R. And guess what it has? Box built in. And guess what else? You can buy a Bluetooth option for it and wear a Bluetooth cordless headset that operates Vox with this radio. So they're doing some things right. Well, they have to be doing a few things right because everybody seems to love them. Okay. Yeah. Well, oh, go ahead. I don't know. Love might be too strong a word today, but give me a week and I'll I'll come back. <laughs> i'm personally a kenwood guy i started out with kenwoods my first radio was a kenwood ts 520s i moved up through a few kenwoods after that i tried a 940 i think it was now i'm using a 570 for hf anyway and i've got a i've got a tmg 707 for uh uhf vhf and i've always had really good luck with kenwoods I even had a Kenwood TS-130S for a little while, which is a hybrid. Uh, no, I take that back. I guess the 130S was actually a solid-state rig. There was there was one I had that was a hybrid. It had, uh, yeah, the digital frequency counter, but still had, uh, you know, the load controls and the plate controls and everything for tuning up and all that. Yeah, two finals. Yeah, maybe the 530. I had one of those. Yeah. 
So I started with those and grew up with them and have grown with them, and they have grown with me. But just recently I bought a Yaesu FT7900 uh, UHF VHF rig for mobile use, and it's okay. I mean, honestly, I still think uh, the interface, the front panel interface, and some of the button patterns are a little bit better with Kenwoods than Yezus, but they work okay. I mean, uh, you know, I don't have anything really bad to say, and I'm not gonna not gonna go on my rant about the microphones for Yezus because the one I have actually works. Yeah, well, the ones I have now work too. It's just why can't you put someone else's on and have it work? That's I don't quite get it, but. Yeah, well, well, why anything is proprietary in that way is sort of the essence of why we do this show. (laughs) Very good. Okay, the ICOM owner has to get a word in here, too, you know. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I got a 746 Pro that I dearly love, and it's uh, probably the best digital mode rig anyway. I don't do much sideband. I get up to the local two-meter repeater now and then, but mostly CW or PSK. It does everything you want a rig to do on, uh, for, for a digital mode for PSK, right down to adjusting the, the filters, uh, the DSP filters in the IF, and down to a 50 hertz width. So if there's somebody on there, uh, I think in a lot of times I can hear them and they can't hear me. Because there may be somebody up the band that's an S9 and and I'm an S3, but then the other guy owns their AGC, and I'm just out of the picture. But with this filters on this thing, you can crank it right down to where you see one PSK signal only. So one one for the icon. Very cool. All right. Well, yay for everybody. Yay for Yezu. Yay for Kenwood. Yay for Icom. We're all represented. There we go. Yep. Everybody's in the house. Gotta keep one it big either. happy family. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> All right, and one thing I wanted to bring up before we close this thing is a little bit about introductory cloud computing. Ubuntu and Mint have ability, or any of the Ubuntu-based distributions, have the ability to use a service that's come out recently called Ubuntu One, which is very low-grade cloud computing. Now, I don't want to go into what cloud computing is and all that kind of thing because it's a topic that is that is very, very big. It's sort of driving all of technology these days. Everything is, you know, migrating to the cloud. And if you ask what the cloud is, then you're going to get a thousand different answers, and which kind of makes sense because clouding is sort of this, you know, this nebulous thing. But it's basically pushing your content away from your physical computer. When you host content that's somewhere else, basically on someone else's server, somewhere out there where you're not necessarily sure where it is or where it's going or how secure it is, then you're in the cloud. And everybody's happy to do this thing these days. And I sort of hate it. This is not a rant about the cloud or cloud computing. This is about Ubuntu One and another service called Dropbox, both of which can be used on Linux but Dropbox, as it happens, can be used on macOS and FreeBSD and Windows as well. They both do exactly the same thing, Dropbox and Ubuntu One. What they do is basically allow you cloud storage. And you can get two gigabytes of storage in the Ubuntu One cloud for free. You can get more as a paid service. Dropbox does exactly the same thing. It gives you a folder on your desktop. 
in Windows. Same with Mac OS X, and it gives you a folder on your in your window manager under Nautilus in GNOME and the KDE window manager under Linux. And basically, there's seamless integration of off-site storage or cloud storage. You take a bunch of your stuff on your computer, you copy it into these folders once you've set up your service, and basically setting up your service with either one of these is going to ubuntu1.com or dropbox.com, giving them a username, password, and email address, and you're all signed up. That assigns you two gigabytes of storage unless you want to bother to pay for more. With dropbox.com, you have to download and install a client and server. It's pretty straightforward. With Ubuntu One, as long as you're using Ubuntu, it's already installed and ready to go. What these all do is they give you a files a file folder on your desktop. One's called Ubuntu One, the other one's called Dropbox. And when you move stuff into them, they all get synchronized on that remote server. So all of the files are there. Now, what's this good for? Well, you go to any other computer, you log into your Dropbox account or Ubuntu One account, or if it happens to be a Linux server or a Linux machine and you're using Ubuntu One or any kind of machine and you're using Dropbox and you download their little proprietary client, then you basically have access to all of the files that are in the cloud. So you can copy, you know, spreadsheets or Word documents or music files or whatever you want, and all of these things look like they're seamlessly integrated into your desktop as a file, just as if it would be on your computer. But, of course, they're hosted somewhere else in the cloud in this nebulous thing where you don't know about security, you don't know what everybody's doing with your data and all that stuff, which is why I don't like it, but I've actually started to use it. And the only reason is because it's horribly convenient. And I say horribly convenient in that way exactly because it is sort of an oxymoron. It is terribly, horribly, awfully, and most egregiously convenient. That being said, it's something that people might be interested in trying out, especially if you're using an Ubuntu or a Linux Mint system. It comes by default, and it's really easy to set up. You use Ubuntu One, you can open it up in your desktop. You'll see the folder there. Uh, basically, it'll walk you through setting up an account, and you just start copying stuff into that folder, and then you can go to any other Ubuntu server that you happen to be running or Ubuntu client, and when you open up Ubuntu One using the same username and password, you'll have access to all of those shares. And that's a sort of very introductory way to use uh, what these days is being called cloud computing. I basically call it network sharing, but it's all part of the the Uber cloud that is coming to take us all away. So anyway, there's my little introduction to cloud computing. So if you all have anything to say, feel free to do so before we go ahead and wrap this thing up. Sounds well, like NFS is hiding under there someplace, basically. I'm not sure what's hiding under all of that. It's uh, A lot of it is Linux-based, and a lot of things are moving this way. What what has come out as uh, what Google calls Chrome OS, which is, and there's a bunch of new ones. called. Well, there's one called like iOS, and there's a few others which are basically just web browsers that have access to web content, which run applications like word processors and text editors and things like that, uh, where nothing is actually on your own machine. You basically have a thin client to run everything off a remote server. These kind of things are what they're calling the cloud, and this kind of nebulous storage thing is just another way to access that kind of cloud data. Okay. I have a hard time getting around the potential security issues. Um to me, 
yeah, it's convenient, but you know what? So is a flash drive that's in my pocket, and I know where my data is. Yeah, no, I'm with you there. Believe me, I, I know exactly where you're coming from, and I feel exactly the same way. Uh, anytime that something goes outside of my control, even if it does look like a folder on my desktop, I get that little twinge, and it bothers me a lot. You know, and they can have use policies and privacy policies that say that they'll never do anything with your data, but, you know, people lie. Absolutely right. And they may not do anything with it, but what happens when they get bought by somebody else? And that happens more often than we'd like to think. So I I don't know. I, I'd much rather have control over my data, and that means I have it on a device that's in my hand, and if it's really important, it's on two different devices, preferably on different types of devices, like a flash drive and a hard drive, or a hard drive and paper, or something, two different, entirely different media, so that uh, I'm almost always guaranteed of being able to find a copy that's usable somewhere. Find a copy and I'm and not required to have an Internet connection to get it. To be able to get a copy and to make sure things are secured. Yep. Sneakerware right. is secure. That's, exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. And, I, and I'm old school just like the both of you are, but unfortunately the cloud is where things are moving to. And it, it's not to say that it's sort of going to take over. It's not necessarily going to be the way things wind up. But with the technology where it is and with new ideas at a premium, the idea of consolidating things into a cloud-like environment and creating resource pools, database pools, and storage pools is how things are going these days. And uh, that's sadly just kind of the way of it. And hopefully it won't be the way things end, uh, but it's the trend at the moment. Yeah, it certainly seems to be a hot topic these days. Um, but as you can tell, I'm not convinced. And if it were my company and my business on the line, I don't know that I would trust it just yet. Not in a mission critical situation. Yeah. And if, you know, so many industries, the one I'm currently working in, for example, are regulated very closely by government agencies, I think if I were to be the focus of an audit or some other review, I don't know that they would necessarily approve of such a thing. Um, certainly not if you've got any data that has to be guaranteed to be pristine uh, and unmodifiable. I don't think they'd want it anywhere but on your local machine. So I'd say we keep an eye on it, but I certainly am not going to recommend it. No, I definitely wouldn't recommend it for anything that you consider private or mission critical. Certainly not. But as a convenience for maybe doing uh, some basic file sharing where you don't necessarily want to send a few MP3s through email and you want to have rapid access to something you've got on one computer and quickly transfer it to another one, uh, it might be something you want to look at. But you definitely want to make sure you consider privacy concerns and keep those things uh, close at hand when you're when you're using this kind of service. Yeah, so I guess that turned into a rant on cloud computing. <laughs> you say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, no, not at all. Ranting is good. Ranting is good. Gets the uh, midichlorians stirred up and all of that. Yeah, maybe it'll generate some feedback for next episode, too. We can only hope. Anyway, I think it's probably time to wind this up, close it down, and hopefully things will work out for Richard where he can be back in a couple of weeks and we can get another one of these episodes out. 
But in the meantime, I really want to thank uh, Andy, who had to leave early, unfortunately, but we will definitely get him back on the show. And I want to thank Bill for coming on and filling in in Richard's very large shoes for the evening. My uh, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. We'll have you whenever we can. So if uh, anybody wants to email you about your rants or any topics that happened tonight, where can they reach you, Bill? K-A-9-W-K-A at BlackSparrowMedia.com. All right. Send Bill some feedback. Send him some hate mail. Just make sure you don't send it to me. All hate mail goes to K-A-9-W-K-A at BlackSparrowMedia.com. And use microphones, too. Yes, use microphones, too. I'll give you the phone numbers to call in and yell at Bill here in just a second. And, Ted, also, thank you very much for coming in here and helping me get this podcast out. I really appreciate it. Ted is W-A-0-E-I-R. And we'll let him tell you where you can send him information or send him questions if you care to. Well, you can find me at http colon slash slash W-A-0-E-I-R dot ham dot org. And my email's on my website. All right. Hope to hear from you. Great. Thank you very much, Ted. So once again, we're about to close the show for tonight, so I want to thank everybody who showed up in the chat room tonight, sent us questions and comments that we could address. My name is Russ. I'm K5TUX. You can reach me at K5TUX at BlackSparrowMedia.com. You can find me as J.R. Woodman on 6,749 social networking sites on the Internet, not the least of which are Facebook, MySpace, Foursquare, and others. Make sure to go to the website at blacksparrowmedia.com stroke LHS or lhsinfo.org. Leave us a comment. Check out when the next upcoming episodes will be broadcast live. You can leave a voice message for the program at 888-455-0305. And if you're outside of the U.S. toll-free calling area, you can call 417 429 4069. We would love to get your voice comments or questions on the air. And we'll do that unless you tell us not to. And I think that's all we have for this episode of Linux in the Ham Shack. We have reached our goal of $750, so we will be at the Dayton Hamvention in May of 2010. We hope to see all of our ham radio friends, listeners, and up and coming hams and friends of those up and coming hams and anybody who is interested in technology, computing, open source, or any of those topics out in Dayton, Ohio. Look for information on that on the website, lhsinfo.org. So thank you very much to everybody who listens to the program, who downloads, who contributes, and who has been faithful to Linux in the Ham Shack. We look forward to putting out our podcast for many, many years to come. Thanks again, and we will catch you all in a couple of weeks. <laughs>